0: The City Life app enables you to listen to Sunday messages and even explore the Bible while listening. Stay up to date with church life through our Connect section and much more. Download the City Life app today. Welcome to the City Life podcast. Our desire is to make Jesus known. We pray that these messages will help equip you to become a follower of Jesus who is empowered to influence and shape culture. Enjoy the message. All right, God bless you guys. Good to see you. I'm Tim. I'm the pastor here and I'm excited about sharing with you God's Word. Go ahead and have a seat and uh, I'd like for you to get your Bibles or your Bible apps opened up to the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. Now don't get paranoid that I'm going to forget to go to the passage because it's going to be near the end of the message. But I really want you to see this in the Scriptures. Matthew 25, 31. 31. Today's message is another one from this series that I'm, I've called Real Questions. And, and I kind of have this broken up, uh, kind of the most interesting series I've ever done, because usually a series is like week after week after week, but, but I have this broken up. I'm only doing, tackling one of these real questions every couple of months. But, but what I like to do is, is find a biting question and, and come at it from a biblical, cultural perspective historical and a literary point of view now in our in our culture in US American culture belief is a big word belief though it's uncertain because a lot of people don't know what they believe and some know what they believe but they don't know why they believe it so my question to you is what do you believe and why do you believe it hopefully today's message will help to uh... make it a little more solid regarding this question If God is love, why have hell? Now now some would say that they cannot embrace the existence of a judgmental God who requires blood to pacify His wrath. Um, The question is, why would someone have to die before the Christian God would pardon? Why can't He just forgive? Other people say they have a, a problem with the Christian doctrine of, of hell and uh, the, the only God that is believable to them is a God of love and they, and, and they say basically the, the Bible's God is no more than some kind of an old primitive deity that has to be appeased with pain and suffering. And you've probably heard some of those same things. You may even have some of those questions yourself or have others ask you. So let's talk about it. We're going to tackle this. This is, a, this is a tough, real question. I'm going to start with this statement, though, and, and it's, it's important because belief, and that's, that's a key word here, belief in divine judgment brings deep distress to our culture. It does. See, the, the belief in God's judgment, as many contend, uh, causes us to uh, be exclusive or abusive or even divisive, Sometimes they'll say that because, because people believe this, then it leads to violence. In our culture, in U.S. American culture today, divine judgment is actually one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. So let's talk about it. Uh, first of all, though, I think we need to take a look at culture itself. Um, U.S. culture is, is personified by something called expressive individualism. Really important terms. This is actually our dominant attitude, whether we realize it or not. A sociologist and author, Robert Bella, he wrote in this book called Habits of the Heart. He speaks at length about this expressive individualism that we pretty much operate by, especially in our U.S. American culture. And what he states in this book is interesting because he says 80%, that's a huge number, 80% of Americans agree with the following statement. I'll read it to you. An individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of a church or synagogue. Now that is what we call expressive individualism. What that means is we are to be free to create our own religion and our own God who fits us best, that works for us personally. What he says is that Americans believe that Moral truth is really relative to every individual and every situation. And, and as a result, U.S. culture embraces something that, that's just basically no spiritual absolutes at all. And our culture has, as a result of this, our culture has created a belief. And it's created this belief that a supporting God of love smiles down on us regardless of how we live. See, our culture objects very strongly to the concept that God punishes people uh, for a sincerely held belief, even if that belief is wrong. But the truth is, we've not always believed that way. That's not the way it's always been. Uh, most in our culture really believe that uh, that magic and sorcery was the prevalent attitude of the ancient world, and then science Proved it wrong, and, and they somehow have it mixed up with that. Uh, but but that's, that's not historic fact. So I want to talk historic fact for just a moment. The rise in the pinnacle of magic was around the 16th and 17th century, right at the same time as modern science was developing. These two were on the rise together, and basically science won out over the magic and sorcery movement. So really, we have to go back past that to the ancient times. And what were the ancient times? They were not marked by magic and sorcery. Really, in the ancient times, it was understood that there was this transcendent moral order that was outside of ourselves, and it was, it was really woven into the fabric of the entire universe. And people believed that if you violated the laws of this transcendent moral order, you would pay deep personal consequences. Uh, they, they taught that the path to wisdom was to simply not violate. This moral order and to live in conformity with it. And so, this involved all the types of uh, character traits that we should develop, such as humility, compassion, and courage, and discretion, and loyalty. And we see this in the ancients around the world. But see, our modern US American thought has now reversed this. You see, ultimate reality now is not seen in the supernatural world, but ultimate reality is seen in the natural world. Instead of trying to conform our desires, what we want, to fit reality, our culture seeks to control and shape reality now to fit our own desires. Expressive individualism. So, modern culture has now given you and me the individual choice to determine what is right and what is wrong on our own. And we're actually led to believe that we're in full control of it all. We're controlling the universe, expressive individualism. Now, understanding now that culture has changed, but the Bible has not changed, this leads us to Christianity and Christianity as it's expressed through the Bible. Like I say around here, we're Bible-based, Jesus-focused church. So, so let's go back to Christianity as it's expressed in the Bible. And in Christianity, there are two very, very obvious dimensions of god the two obvious dimensions are god is a god of love now this is an unconditional love god is a god of love and second god is a god of justice which means he corrects and he writes everything that is wrong okay look at that now god is both his justice cannot be separated from his love ever Anyone who is loving is sometimes filled with wrath. Not despite their love, but because of their love. And think about it this way. If you love a person and you observe someone harming them, or if you see them ruining themselves, you get angry. Why? It's because you really, really love them. It's like, Rebecca you know she's like don't mess like her, her boys were younger i maybe still the same way but, but yeah, don't mess with her boys or, or she, she you will see the wrath of mom you know isn't that right why it's based in love some of you who are moms you know exactly what I'm talking about some of you dads you don't want to have the wrath of dad it's like I f- f- sometimes i like, you was know, just like don't mess with my little baby boy okay now but listen That's natural. And see, that's because of love. So justice is rooted in authentic love. Do you see it? Anyone who's experienced authentic love for someone will do that. And again, I think it's best seen in a healthy family relationship between a parent and a child. So think of how you feel when you see someone you really, really love And they're being torn apart by unwise actions or relationships. Do you respond with benign tolerance? Like you might do with a total stranger? No, absolutely not. So, I conclude this. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hatred is the opposite of love. Let's take it a step further. I believe the final form of hatred is indifference. And indifference uh, toward ourselves or anyone else is actually a huge signal that love has somehow been taken out of the equation. So my question is, why is indifference magnified in our culture and why in our culture are we saying, well, if we're indifferent, then we really love because we're not gonna say anything. That's not love. Now, back to God. Back to God. God's wrath its not some kind of crazy explosion of anger from this grouchy, cranky dictator who's just looking for something to do, lightning bolts in his hand, just waiting to zap someone with it, you know? <laughs> Actually, God's wrath flows from his love for all that he created. His wrath is what I would call like a settled opposition to whatever would harm or destroy the people that he loves and this is what we see in the bible from the very beginning to the very end god is angry at all evil and injustice and rightly so because it destroys the peace and integrity of his creation does that make sense psalm 145 says it well it says the lord is righteous in all his ways and he is faithful in what he does And he watches over those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. That's just how love works. Now that I know there are a lot of other arguments that are out there regarding this big question today. I mean, some complain that if you believe in a God of judgment, then you're not going to have the desire to then reconcile with your own enemies. Or if you believe in a God that smites evildoers, then you might think it's perfectly fine just to go ahead and and smite some evildoers yourself. I actually disagree with that wholeheartedly. If, If God were not angry at injustice and deception, and if God did not bring an end to violence, then I would have to say this, that God is not worthy of my worship think about it if there's no god of vengeance who takes vengeance we have to quite honestly this is what we're seeing more and more even in our own culture people are engaging in lawlessness because they feel they are on their own And they have to take vengeance into their own hands. In fact, I even believe this, that this new uh, lack of belief in a God of vengeance actually nourishes violence. You see the human impulse to make uh, perpetrators of evil and, and, and whatever is, is bad that's happening pay, to make them pay for their crimes, I mean, that's almost overwhelming. Most, most people would agree with that. That's called law and order. But, but something is rapidly growing in our culture, today's culture, where victims of violence are drawn to go far beyond justice into this state of vengeance, which basically says this, you put out one of my eyes, I'm going to put both of your eyes out or this line i will destroy you for what you did that's vengeance and this becomes this endless cycle of strikes and counterstrikes lawlessness but 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 see it's all justified in the person's mind because they keep remembering how they were wronged and they have no way to process it and 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 i believe it's because they don't believe in the God of justice, who loves them deeply, who will handle matters much better than they ever could. One of the greatest things has helped me from being vengeant toward others who have harmed me is just to know that God will take care of them better than I ever could. Let's move on with life. It's, it's interesting because even in state cultures of communism and uh, Nazism, in recent history, um, where a belief... In the judgment of God was basically cast out or was lost out of that national culture, and where people were told just to go ahead and shape their own morals any way they chose without any kind of absolute uh, accountability, it did lead to violence and oppression. Nazi Germany, communist Russia, communist China, communist North Korea, communist Cuba, communist Venezuela. Just read today's headlines of what's happening there. My missionary friends were driven out because they preached the God of the Bible. Now, 15 years later, so therefore I believe God's final judgment is is necessary because it undergirds the human practices of love and peacemaking because God will have the final word. See, we can love and we can make peace because we know and we believe that God will make things straight in the end and we don't have to take vengeance. God loves us so we can just go ahead and love our enemies. You say, okay, okay, pastor, that's, that's good. But, but, but what about this thing of sending people to hell? I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, good, well, let's do that. Now, the Bible does speak of eternal punishment. But how does eternal punishment fit into the love of God? Well, that's really one of the biggest questions here. See, modern thinking, and and in fact, I would even say modern religious thinking, a lot of thinking that happens in churches, goes along these lines, basically like this. God gives us all time, and if we haven't made the right moral choices by a certain point in life, then God is going to cast our souls into hell for eternity. And then as this poor soul is falling through space and they realize that they're being thrown into hell, uh, they they cry out for mercy and they say, God, help me, help me, help me. I don't want this. Give me another chance. But God says, nope, you had your chance. It's too late. You blew it. (laughs) Suffering is your destiny. You're going to burn in hell. (laughs) A lot of people believe that. But I believe this caricature actually misrepresents the very nature of So let's start at the foundation with with sin itself. Here's what I believe. I believe this, it's in the scriptures, that sin separates us from God, okay? And if it separates us from God, then we're being separated from the source of all joy, all love, all wisdom, and all good. See, that's the danger of sin, you understand that. Let me explain something to you. We were originally created in the Garden of Eden. Thank you. We were originally created in the Garden of Eden to experience God's immediate presence. God present and real right where we are. So only in the face of God are we able to really flourish and to live out our highest potential. In fact, I I believe this is that Losing the presence of God is where hell begins. Now, I'll put it as the lowercase, hell. Because without the presence of God, what happens is, because we were designed for the presence of God, we begin to lose our capability of giving and receiving love and joy. And I believe a person's soul then begins to disintegrate when they push back against the presence of God, just as fire causes disintegration. So, in other words, when we become self-centered, and I'll just put it this far, worshiping ourselves, expressive individualism, making God to look like us, it actually ruins us. See, selfishness and self-absorption leads to to ugly bitterness. It leads to just nauseating envy. It leads to paralyzing anxiety and paranoia and and even mental denials and, and distortions that accompany all of those types of things. And as our soul continues to disintegrate, our misery, therefore, increases. And that's a reality in life. We see it all around us. So think about this. What if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends into eternity, which is what I believe? Then could it be that hell is the trajectory of a soul that has lived a self-absorbed, self-centered life continuing on and on and on forever in a continual state of disintegration? It's a thought. Now I want, with that in mind, I want us to take a look at a passage from the scriptures. This is, uh, I'm going to put it for, up for you on the screens, read it from the message version of the Bible. This is something that Jesus shared. This is the parable of a poor beggar by the name of Lazarus, and he was, he went to heaven. And it's also about a rich man, and he went to hell. It's in Luke 16, Jesus says this, it says, there was a rich man. Expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. A poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, had been dumped on his doorstep. All he lived for was to get a meal from scraps off the rich man's table. His best friends were the dogs who came and licked his sores. And then he died. This poor man and was taken up by the angels to the lap of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell and in torment, he, the rich man, looked up and saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap and said, Father Abraham, mercy, mercy, have mercy. Have Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. Abraham said, Child, Remember that in, in your lifetime, you got the good things and Lazarus got the bad things. It's not like that here. Here he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all these matters, there's a huge chasm set between us so that no one can go from us to you, even if he wanted, nor can anyone cross over from you to us. So the rich man asked, said, then, then, then let me ask you, Father, send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so that he can tell them the score and warn them so they won't end up here in this place of torment. But Abraham answered, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. In today's translation of that, they have the scriptures and they have the preachers <laughs> to tell them the score. Let them listen to them. I know, Father Abraham, he said, But they're not listening. If someone came back to them from the dead, then they would change their ways. And Abraham replied, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. Now, there are a lot of interesting things there. First of all, their statuses are reversed. But also the rich man seems to be blind to everything that's that's happening. and He actually expects Lazarus to be his servant. I mean, literally be his water boy. And then, in hell, he's, he's complaining that God never gave him enough information and he gave, never gave his family enough information about the reality of eternity. And, and, then, and unlike Lazarus, it's interesting that the rich man has no name. It's like, it's like in this state of disintegration, he's even lost his identity because of his focus on self, of wealth, and self-absorption rather than on God. And, I, and I, I think what is craziest is he never even asks to get out of hell. Why did he even ask for Lazarus to come back from the dead than him? He doesn't even ask to leave his misery. He never asked. In fact, here's interesting that you'll find in the Bible, no one ever asks to get out of hell. Why? Well, I believe it's this. For this reason, is because hell is actually a choice. It's simply one's freely chosen place of selfishness apart from God in this trajectory that goes into infinity. Now, guys, we see this all around us. As I show you this, you'll see, like, yeah, I I see this trajectory of selfishness and I see it happening around me. Maybe you're experiencing it yourself. There's this little progression I want to show you. First of all, it starts off with a dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction of who we are. And that's one of the reasons why I make a big deal around here about our identity in Christ who we are our purpose those things are very very important because if we don't grasp that the disintegration continues but this is dissatisfaction with who we are and so then we try to satisfy ourselves with this next level which is which I call addictions and this would be addictions to wealth or substances it could be success Uh, adrenaline it it could be uh, power pornography travel status entertainment i don't know but it's an addiction of some sort it may even be something that's okay but you're addicted to it and now it's not okay but but see what happens is as time goes by with the addiction you have to have more and more of the addictive substance to give this equal kick therefore you have less and less satisfaction in your life and then you begin to move into more personal disdain And uh, you move to this next level, uh, spiritual as well as relational isolation. This is when you just begin to blame everyone else for your circumstances. Nobody understands me, everybody's against me. I'm annoyed by everyone. And in that place of isolation, we indulge in even more of our self pity and self absorption. And then we fall apart leaning even more heavily back into the addictions. And personal disintegration grows and grows and grows into eternity, forever. Ever-increasing isolation, ever-increasing denial, ever-increasing delusion, ever-increasing self-absorption. Humility is gone, and you are now completely out of touch with reality. That's why nobody ever asks to leave hell. Because for them... Still, the thought of heaven being a reality is is a sham. The author C.S. Lewis describes hell this way. He says, hell begins with the grumbling mood, always complaining and blaming others, but you are still distant from it. You may even criticize it within yourself and you wish to stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop. And then there will be No more of you left to even criticize your own mood or even enjoy it. All you can do is grumble and grumble, going on forever like a machine. See, so, so it's not so much a question of God sending us to hell, because within every one of us there is something that continues to grow, which will lead us to hell unless we nip it in the bud. People in hell, they're, they're miserable. It's this raging flames of unchecked uh, pride and paranoia. Flames of self-pity. And, and where, where you're just certain that everyone else is wrong and that everyone else is an idiot. <laughs> There's no humility. With humility gone also goes your sanity. And they're locked in a prison of self-centeredness and their pride just progressively expands into this bigger and bigger mushroom cloud and they go to pieces for eternity, but they don't go away. And they blame themselves for their disintegration. And they don't even ask to get out. See, that's why I believe it's a travesty to picture God as this one who angrily hurls people into a pit as they scream, I'm sorry, let me out, let me out. See, people who choose hell, they would actually rather have their own freedom as they define it, rather than salvation from hell through Jesus. C.S. Lewis states it this way. He said, hell is the greater monument to human freedom. Their delusion is that if they glorify God, they would somehow lose their power and freedom. And that's actually a tragic irony because their desires have now ruined them for eternity. It's just like Paul says to the letter to the Romans. He says, God just gave them up to their own desires. Huh. Hey, all, all God does in the end with people is give them what they desire the most Including freedom from himself and his presence. Hey, what could be more fair and just than that? He's given you what you want. And nobody ever begs to get out. C.S. Lewis writes, there are only two types of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God. Or those to whom God says, thy will be done. And those who who are in hell are in the latter group. And still, God is a God of love. But the origin of this concept of God being a God of love isn't even really understood by most people in our culture. Now, most doubters in the love of God and the judgment of God, uh, they tend to believe that love accepts people regardless of their beliefs and practices. And this God of love is actually found at the core of all religions in the world. But, but I want to challenge that because if you honestly examine the, the depths and the truth of who the gods of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Confucianism is, you will undoubtedly find that a loving God of all faiths is not the case. In fact, it's not even close. Do you realize there's no other religious text outside of the Bible whose core is a God of deep love? Still, a lot of people say, well, they they can't believe in the God of the Bible who punishes and judges people because they believe in the God of love. Okay, so here's my question then. So what makes you think that God is a God of love? Where do you get that from? I mean, can you examine it in other religious texts and conclude that God is a God of love? Impossible. No. So... What is the source of the cultural idea that God is a God of love? The source, it's only one place in all literature in the history of the world, the Bible itself. It's the only place where the concept is found. And the Bible tells us that this God of love is also a God of judgment who puts all things right together in the end. The belief in a God of love who accepts everyone but judges no one actually demands more faith than Christianity. I don't have enough faith to believe that. Why? Because there's no evidence for it in the natural order. There's almost no historical or religious textual support for it outside of Christianity. So what do I believe? Well, I believe in the literal God of the Bible. I believe in a literal heaven of the Bible, and I believe in the literal hell of the Bible. In Jude 1.7, um, we're given this example of this fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's this illustration of hell. And many people within our culture say, well, yeah, that's because there were homosexuals there. Well, I want to say, well, wait a minute. We need to take a look at what the Bible says. What was the core of Sodom's destruction? Well, I actually believe that it started with the progression of that I showed you earlier, and I have there's biblical support for it. In fact, the Bible's explicit about it. It's a, really about rejection of God and worship of self. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel, he states this. He, uh, he talks about why Sodom was destroyed, and he said, now this was the sin of Sodom. Here it is, right here. Because this is the example of what hell is like, all right? So she and her daughters, which would mean the city of Sodom and the other small communities around, were arrogant, Overfed, unconcerned, they didn't help the poor, or the needy, they were haughty, and they just did detestable things before me, therefore I did away with them as you have seen. See, this is the progression of hell, and the live example for us on earth of what happens. See, Jude goes on to describe such people that are going to spend an eternity in hell with these words. He said, these people are grumblers and fault finders. Again, Jude's talking about the people who choose to spend eternity in hell. They, they follow their own evil desires and they boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. And I read that and I say, may God convict us all. I mean it. Me too. And... and, and We take the words of Jude seriously also because he said to be merciful to those who doubt. I'm not angry at a doubter. I'm merciful to a doubter because God shows mercy to me. And sometimes I don't have everything figured out but God shows mercy to me. But I believe hell is a literal place. I believe hell is eternal separation from God and everything good that comes from God. I believe that hell is physical, mental, and spiritual, eternal tormented. And none of us will know who will actually be in heaven and who will be in hell. Therefore, we do not condemn nor do we judge. God does that. What do we do? We love we choose patience. We wave hope in front of people. We, we choose to help and encourage and we pray for God to convict and convince because He can do it and we can't. Why do we not judge? Well, it's because I believe we all deserve hell. And salvation from hell is found in only one place, and that is Jesus. We, we look to Jesus as the source of salvation. He is the only one who can rescue us from our self-centeredness and from our sinful nature. So in closing, I want us to look now at this passage in Matthew 25, verse 31, because this gives us the picture of what the end will look like. Reading from the New International Version, please follow me in your Bibles, Matthew 25, 31. Jesus says, Jesus told this story. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, speaking of Himself, and all the angels with Him, He will sit, Jesus will sit on His glorious throne. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the King will say to those on His right, the sheep, come, You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me, and I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But then then the righteous will answer him, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? (laughs) And the King Jesus will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did, for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he'll turn to those on his left and he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed. He didn't say, I curse you. They've cursed themselves. You see that? He says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't create hell to put people there. Do you know that? He didn't. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I, I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. And I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. Now they will also answer, Lord... When, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? Now, I think it's odd because they just heard the explanation a moment earlier, but still, self-delusion. And Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do to the least of these, you did not do for me. And then it says, they will go away on their own into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life now listen we, we we don't get to heaven by our works please make i want to make that clear but our unselfish works that's evidence that jesus has taken over lordship of our lives and we're no longer worshiping ourselves or making a god in our image we have rejected self-worship you see that so what's the answer <laughs> the answer is jesus He's the one who forgives us. He's the one who gives us hope. He's the one who gets us off of this trajectory toward hell. And he's the one who puts us on the believer's path toward heaven. My friend, it's all about Jesus. For God so loved this world, he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever, whoever would just do one thing, believe just believe in Jesus whoever would just believe in Jesus would not experience hell's disintegration for eternity but would have life for eternity Jesus was not sent into the world to condemn the world but he was sent here so that the world through him could experience salvation from hell that's the good of a loving God of justice. Please no movement at this time. Will you close your eyes? Focus internally, and maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life completely to Jesus. Maybe you've veered from the path and you're finding yourself on this other trajectory and you want a new beginning. You're, you're, you're ready to reject this trajectory toward hell that you're experiencing now. And I just want to say I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And if you'd like to be Included in the closing prayer and give and surrender your life completely to Jesus. Then I'm going to simply ask you to lift your hand when I count to three in just a moment. Because faith, it's when we respond outwardly to what we're feeling and being stirred by on the inside. Remembering that Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. Jesus died for you and shed his blood for you so that you could live forever and everything can change today now one two three please lift your hand now so i can connect my faith with yours so i can pray we can pray together and make things right with jesus lift your hand for me thank you thank you who else Here's what I'd like for us to do. I want everyone in this room to stand. Please stand with me. I would like you, along with this entire congregation of believers, to pray these words with me. I want everyone to mean this from the bottom of your heart. Pray these words with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. I believe you're the Son of God. Please forgive my sins. Today I give up my past and I embrace the future that you have for me. I give up hell, and I receive salvation from hell. In Jesus' name, amen. City Life is able to continue making Jesus known through the consistent investments of many. If you would like to invest financially into the vision, you can do so at citylifecenter.org. Simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thank you for listening to this week's message from City Life Church. You can stay connected through Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday.